from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Jack Veffer on May 6, 2019. Jack is a writer and a child survivor of the Holocaust. His first book was entitled Through the Eyes of the Child, Survival of the Holocaust. He just released a new edition of the book, and he renamed it The Holocaust as Seen Through the Innocence of a Child. We talk about the book, and he reads a moving excerpt from it. In total, Jack has published five books. His other four books we talk about in the interview. I started the interview by asking Jack where he grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in in Europe. First, I was born in Holland in 1940. After the war, I moved to Belgium. When I was 18, I emigrated to Canada. So most of my young life was spent in Europe. And then at 18, when I came to Canada, I went to high school and went to work in Toronto. I lived in Toronto. My young life was terrible because uh, all I remember are the dark days of being involved in the uh, separation of the loved ones that I had. It happened very early on. When I was three years old, I was left with some neighbors to uh, look after me while my parents tried to go to um, to Switzerland, and they felt it was too dangerous for me to travel along with them. And so I got pretty sick, so I wound up in a hospital. My uncle, who was uh, my mother's brother, came and picked me up and took me to Brussels, where I spent the rest of the war with him and his then-girlfriend in Brussels. And while I was there, I contracted pneumonia, uh, actually pleurisy, and wound up in the hospital there. And that hospital was the only one that got bombed with a V1 bomb while I was there. And I got badly burnt and pretty badly injured while I was in the hospital. After the war, well, then I stayed in Brussels for a while and went to Antwerp. And I went to school there. Then I came to Canada in 1958. At first, I grew up, and as I mentioned in, in the description of my, in my book, is that I, I, I became disdainful of religion and the belief in God. And my uncle, who had instilled in me the hatred of all religion, and the fact he said that if you believed in God, you were a weakling, and you couldn't look after your own affairs. So I grew up mostly like that. It wasn't until I came to Canada as a Jew by birth, and I spent some time in a Jewish holiday resort in um, Gravenhurst, which had some Jewish kids there, and they said, uh, the first time I heard about the Baha'i faith was that they said, if they weren't Jewish, they would be Baha'i. 
oddly enough, that didn't resonate with me because I'd never heard the term. And it wasn't until the early 70s that the Baha'i was reintroduced to me through a fellow worker who in actual fact was Baha'i. And I told him I was interested in finding out more about his background because I really admired him. So he says, if you want to find out about what makes me tick, he says, come to a fireside in my home. A fireside is what? And that's what I asked myself too, is it because he has a fireplace that I come to his fireside? And so when I got there, no fireplace, but I understood then that it was a description of the Baha'i faith. And that's the first time I was introduced to the faith formally. As you can imagine, I was very, it got me angry that he was talking about God. He put a book on the table. He said to me, have you ever read this book? And I said, no, I haven't. So he says, well, give me an opinion of this book. I said, I can't, I've not read it. He says, it's the same thing about the Baha'i faith. He says, you asked me to tell me what drives me. And he says, if you don't agree with me, at least wait until I've finished my story. Then I was quiet, obviously, because he had me there. So little by little, I started to understand what the belief in God meant. I wasn't so hostile anymore. And about after about a year, I declared my love for Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. Yes, yes. That was the beginning of, of a long period of me being a Baha'i. It was in 1972. So that's about 40, 46 years ago, I guess, now. At that time, also, I was married with children, and my then-wife walked out on me when I said I was a Baha'i, threatened to divorce me. So out of necessity, I stayed away for a while and notified the uh, local spiritual assembly that not to contact me. So I lost about six or seven years of not participating in the faith. And then my marriage broke up and I started pursuing the faith again, not right away. I got to know another young lady and uh, we got along very well and we got married. And she was the one actually, even though she wasn't Baha'i, to urge me to pursue faith. And she subsequently became a Baha'i also. And we've been uh, together for almost 40 years. I don't know if you can describe that transition, how you could be so angry with God to accepting God and actually praying to God. I imagine a lot of people would be curious how one could make that transition. One thing I had to overcome was the fact that these were my uncle's words, and I just learned them very well, I guess, from him. He said that if God was so merciful, how could he let six million Jews die? That was ingrained in my brain, and that the ones who murdered the, the Jews were monsters, and I had to hate every German that I met and never ever be involved with anything German. And then he also said that the belief in God is for weaklings. Only weaklings 
believing. So that kept me back. But then when I came to Canada and I started to look into spirituality that was devoid in my life, I looked around and I looked at different religions. None of them could accommodate my needs for spiritual fulfillment. Until I came across the Baha'i faith and it then allowed me to pursue the idea of me being able to live in this day and age with a religion that allowed me to be spiritual, be loving, and be a part of a faith that loved everyone, that was a world religion. So the only one for me then was the Baha'i faith, which was ideal because it answered all my questions. It answered the the progressive revelation, the idea that God stands by us. Jack, you refer to progressive revelation that attracted you, that concept to the Baha'i faith. Can you explain to folks what that concept is? As I understand it, God speaks to mankind at different periods in time. Every thousand years or so, God speaks to man through a new prophet or an individual that he appoints with a new message for mankind. And that message that he gives us is based upon the understanding of humanity to be able to not only understand what God tells them, how he cautions them to abide by the new prophecy, so to speak, because it becomes out of date, no longer relevant to the time in which we live. So therefore, he educates us, especially like children in in school, from grade one to grade two and so on, and until such time that he feels that humanity has reached its maturity, which the Baha'i faith tells us we have as a, as a humanity, we have reached a stage where we can accept everyone in a loving and united way, where the idea of there's only one world, and that's the entire world, one country, one nation, one God, which allows us to live in harmony. So in essence, my understanding of a progressive revelation. So I'm speaking with Jack Veffer a child survivor of the Holocaust, an author of five books. The first book, Jack, I'd like to discuss with you is the one about your survival of the Holocaust. And I guess this is a re-release of your first book. I guess you've retitled the book, so maybe you could tell us about that. Well, first of all, I was born in Holland of Jewish parents in Amsterdam. In actual fact, I was born in uh, October 1940. The first book that I released because I had the urge to not only explore my own experiences as a child survivor, but also as a process of healing, I was told to write down my experiences. So the first book that I wrote was called Through the Eyes of the Child, The Survival of the Holocaust. It's a book about my memory as a survivor, my parents and myself right along with all the Jews of Holland, were aggressively pursued by the Germans 
and the German Nazis, with the help of many Dutch collaborators, were very successful in actually removing most of the Jews to the concentration camps. One of the items in the book that I write about is the background of the German people. It's a story of, about murder, mass murder, I write, on a scale that we uh, that was until then unknown. The murder was premeditated and committed in cold blood. The murderers were Germans, and the murdered were the Jews of Holland. The Jews were in the process of disenfranchisement and isolation, robbed of everything. They were transported in a systematic way. In a technically efficient manner, they were murdered. The Jews of Holland were city folk and farmers. They were orthodox and agnostic or atheist. They were healthy and sick, old and young, families and individuals. Without hurry, well thought out, the Germans went about their business. And the murderers were often not brutes or illiterates, but academics and intellectuals with an abiding love for literature and sculpture and music. Many were caring fathers and mothers. And during the holiday season, they celebrated Christmas with their loved ones. And after that, they resumed their labor, which was the murder of countless men, women, and children, defenseless people, human beings. Mine is but one story, as seen through the eyes of one child, there are millions more. Would you like to read an excerpt? Yeah, if I can get through it. It's actually difficult for me to do that. Mummy and Daddy are whispering. I can't hear what they're saying. Mummy starts to cry. I feel very sad. Why is she crying, I wonder? And Daddy yells, it's the only solution and this will save our children. It's too dangerous to bring them along. They will just slow us down. Maurice, my brother, stands in front of Daddy and looks up at him. Yes, Daddy, he says, I, I will look after Jackie when you and Mommy are gone. Don't worry, I'm a big boy now. He's only seven years old. Yes, I, I like the boys upstairs. They're my best friends, he says. I think that's funny because he told me before that he didn't like these boys. Mommy is talking to me now and she says, Daddy and I are going away for a while. As tears are falling from her eyes. Mrs. Vanderclough from upstairs will look after you boys. We have left our things with her my jewelry and my expensive china dishes. She will give them back once we come back from Switzerland. I've given her money for your food and other things. You'll be able to play with her two boys all the time. I want to go with you, mommy, I say with a whimper. No, you can't, Jackie. Mommy, I, I won't be bad anymore. I won't burn myself with milk anymore. I promise, please. Please, I'll be good from now on. Mommy and Daddy are both crying, so not knowing what else to do, I cried too. 
Maurice is holding on to my hand, pushing back his tears. I think he doesn't want to cry in front of me because he's my big brother. There's a knock on the door. It's my Uncle Jules, mommy's brother. Uncle Jules says with a laugh, Oh, I got a German SS uniform. I got it from the resistance and they got it from a dead SS officer. They will help us get to Switzerland. They're giving us a car and a driver to get us to the border. And once at the border, another car will be waiting to take us all the way to France. On a dark moonless night, a black car with its lights turned off, pulls up in front of our house. Mommy, Daddy, and Uncle Jules loaded down with bags, trudge down the flights of stairs. Maurice and I stand near the car. We expect that we can go along for the long ride. I'm really excited. But as I look at Mommy's face, I know that she's crying, right? I know that's not a good sign. As I attempt to climb into the car, I can feel gentle hands restrain me. Mommy, you're squeezing me too hard. I can't breathe, I said, choking. With Jaws resolute, Mommy and Daddy get into the back seat, and Uncle Jules takes a seat beside the driver. None of them turn around to look back. The car pulls away from the curb. My big brother, Maurice, clutching my hand, is crying now. I can tell he wants to be courageous, but the burden of responsibility of looking after both of us all by himself, is engulfing him. We watch the car disappear around the corner into the night. There's more of this. I find it hard to go on. So. Yeah, that's fine, Jack. That's fine. So that's the last you saw of your parents? Yes, that's right. So I'm speaking with Jack Veffer, a child survivor of the Holocaust, an author of five books, and we're just talking about his first book, called Through the Eyes of the Child, Survival of the Holocaust. And he just read a very emotional passage about seeing his parents leave. That was the last time that he saw them. Very touching, Jack. Thank you for that. So maybe we can go on to your second book that you wrote, which is called Science and Religion is a Match Made in Heaven, which in some ways is supportive of the uh, Baha'i Principle that science and religion are to agree. So maybe you can tell us about that book. Even though it's not a continuation of my first book, my idea about science and religion being in accord with each other, they cannot deny each other. You cannot deny religion through scientific discourse. So it's a book of fiction. But what I did is I based it on extensive research and some of my intuition and imagination. So much of the commentary is fictional. It has its origin in the great scientific minds of history. And while sometimes embellished, the commentary is largely factual and, and correct. And the conclusions that I came to are based on scientific facts. I gave my imaginary characters names that sometimes belong to the real thinkers that I most admire. And some of the commentary comes from their actual words or writings. And their actions are based on historical fact. But 
more often than not, their words and actions are what I imagined they might have said and done. The story evolves by traveling in my mansion, and it's the mansion in my imagination. It starts out with the idea that when I'm born, I came out of one place and was born into this new place and saw all these people around me laughing. And and all of a sudden, my concept of my life becomes much, much different. And then as I progress, I'm allowed to travel in my imagination through the different rooms of my mansion. One of the rooms is honesty. Another room is love. Another room is hatred and so on. So it allows me to explore the very things that motivate us in life. And eventually I come to the conclusion that we all need to look after each other as human beings through love and unity. And that's basically what the book is about. So I'm speaking with Jack Pfeffer, a child survivor of the Holocaust and author of five books, and we're reviewing his repertoire of books in the interview. He just described his second book, Science and Religion is a Match Made in Heaven. Now, the third book, uh, Jack, is titled Future Shock is Here. What do we do now, Alvin? Maybe you could tell us about that. Yes, the title is a play on word. Early on in the late 70s, some of you who are old enough might remember Alvin Toffler. And Alvin Toffler was the author of Future Shock. And Future Shock talks about the changes that are coming about, that will come about. And he was quite accurate in his assessment of what the future would bring. And so when I was looking for a title, I started with this Future Shock is Here, What Do We Do Now, Alvin, as a working title. But I liked it so much that I kept it. He's written other books, but anyways, that one really impressed me. So this third book is about the death of the Industrial Revolution and the start of a new revolution called the Information Age. As we all know, the Industrial Age is waning. My book, Future Shock, is here. What do we do now, Alvin, is about the radical changes that are occurring in this new information age economy and more importantly how these changes affect us all if people can understand what is happening the new information age won't seem that scary because we'll all comprehend that this new information age will benefit us in so many different ways the book gives us knowledge about artificial intelligence uh, virtual reality, enhanced intelligence, nanotechnology, sentient robots, nanobots, and new exciting ways of growing and building things. If some of these terms are new, we will do well to read the book because we can learn as much as we can because we'll all be able to play an important role in this new information age and we all matter in this new economy. When we familiarize ourselves 
the more we know about this new economy, the better. We'll learn about new ways to earn a living and create wealth for ourselves. New ways of creating wealth don't come along very often. And the telltale signs of this happening are the profound changes that are occurring in our daily lives. What we've experienced thus far are inevitable changes that must take place to make room for the information age. The changes are confusing and they leave us in profound distress. But cheer up for it will become one of the greatest, most exciting enterprises that mankind has ever gone through in our short history. It will bring with it a sense of personal fulfillment, a positive change in family dynamics and a more wholesome community life. This new wealth system is about to explode on the scene and is brought to us by a new civilization of consumers. These are the billions of people that are shopping on the internet. Today's wealth revolution won't only replace old technologies, but it will also profoundly alter institutions as today's traditional role economies change into knowledge-based economies. The internet generation will completely alter the way we do things. It will change the way we buy art, music, fashion, cars, food, insurance, the way we bank, the way we exercise, the way we meditate, and it will develop new attitudes, alter personal freedoms in the way we practice politics and religion. It will profoundly affect personal happiness in, in the most positive way. At least that's my expectation. So I'm speaking with Jack Pfeffer, a child survivor of the Holocaust and author of five books. We just went through three of them. The first one was Through the Eyes of the Child Survival of the Holocaust. The second one was Science and Religion is a Match Made in Heaven. And the third one was Future Shock is Here. What do we do now, Alvin? Now the next book is entitled Survival. So maybe, Jack, you could tell us about that book. And it is the third edition, believe it or not. Because I published these myself through Amazon's um, CreateSpace, the first two weren't quite complete and they kind of went off the track. So when I made the corrections, the one that's being sold today on Amazon is called Survival, the third edition. And the third edition is an exploration into uh, the relationship that must exist between the wellness of humanity and the wellness of the planet. I'll give you an excerpt from the book itself. We should compare our world to a garden. That is a garden of a community working together in perfect harmony for its survival. The book describes wellness encompasses everything, not only wellness of the body, but also the wellness of, of our planet. If the planet is sick, then we are sick. If the planet is healthy, then we can be healthy. As a stakeholder in this ongoing saga, we play an important role which affects its outcome. We must ask ourselves if this is a story about 
the survival of only the fittest, as Darwin claims, or is it a story about the survival of the loving, as Rumi, the Persian poet, writes about so eloquently. It's important that we recognize that all humans are like the cells in an organism which we call humanity, and that we live in the most beautiful garden ever created. Each one of us has the inherent right to occupy a seat at the banquet table in this wonderful garden. And sadly, what we're witnessing now is no less than the complete deconstruction of our human enterprise and because we don't quite understand the importance of it, we haven't yet acquired the knowledge to provide a soothing balm for its healing. There we hope that we can rebuild our world into a society that is based not on a society where only the fittest survive, but a society based on the survival of the loving. We can muster the will and the wisdom to save us from ourselves. Is Darwin right or is Rumi right? Surely our destiny should not be dependent on the narrow-minded, selfish agenda of the few who are intent upon man's destruction. Instead, let's find ways to rebuild our world better. Do we have the knowledge and the wisdom? Do we have the courage? Do we have the time? All is hinging on the common view to build it better from the ground up, with the enlightened view to include everyone this time and leave no one behind. Besides a common sense to build wellness and good health in this new society, it must also include social justice, incorporating a sense of fair play, common sense and jurisprudence, the disenfranchisement of most people in the world has been going on unabated for a very long time. And the assumption of power by no more than 1% of the world's population has existed for just as long or longer. This has to change and the power to govern has to be given to the most talented, not to rule us, but to represent all of us fairly. Knowledge is power, and that knowledge must be shared with everyone, women and men, boys and girls alike. The equality of men and women must be a part of the social framework that eliminates extreme wealth and extreme poverty, as these represent a serious impediment for man's survival. When we look at all of humanity, we must only see that we are all equal in the eyes of God, no matter what part of the world we come from. Love of one's country should be supplanted by the love of one's world. And by the way, we're all citizens of this world. What we're witnessing now is the gradual breakdown of the social structures that because of their lopsided framework, no longer serve a purpose. Its replacement must be the model that will serve humanity for the next 1,000 years. Whether we make it or not will depend on the oneness of the vision of the all-inclusiveness that embraces all of God's children. Our birthright 
is equality for all. And the love for all must be the driving force for the new world order because nothing less will work. The global vision for a new society must of a need harmonize scientific and spiritual values while incorporating a new approach to modernity and at the same time respect historical boundaries within the context of a past based on local cultures and societies. I'm speaking with Jack Veffer, a child survivor of the Holocaust and author of five books, and we've been going through his books, and he just read an excerpt from Survival, the third edition, which really, I think, describes a paradigm shift in this whole concept of survival of the fittest for the future of mankind. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's very much so. Many of these ideas that I have is from my belief in the Baha'i religion, mm-hmm. who talk about uh, these very principles for humanity to be able to survive the next stage of our existence. They're very much at the forefront. That they drive my actions every day, particularly the equality of men and women which is important, and the elimination of extreme wealth and extreme poverty, because these are definitely an impediment for the world to survive and to progress into a better place. Now, your last work is called The Theory of Everything Explained in a Simple Way. Why don't you tell us about that book? This book is a flight into the quantum entanglement that exists between men and the all-knowing universal consciousness. And it took me 10 years to write this book and a lifetime of thinking about it. It's about the entanglement between God and man and the theory that explains everything. In the Talmud, the subtle relationship between the individual reflective mind, which is man, and the universal consciousness, which is God, as reflected in the dialogue between Abraham and God, when something like this, and obviously I'm paraphrasing, these are my words, God says to Abraham, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't exist. And Abraham thoughtfully replies, yes, that's very true, Lord. I thank you for that. But if it weren't for me, nobody would know about you. The story of existence itself cannot exist without the creative force and the creator. The innermost secret of life is that simple. An intimate relationship between the creator and the created. Man knows what God knows. It is man's collective responsibility to learn and share. God's knowledge and man's knowledge is entangled. Therein lies the explanation to the one theory that explains everything. What entangled means in this concept is that they are one and the same. Since we as human beings are constrained by time and space, And even though, according to the principle of entanglement, 
we ought to know what God knows, so is our knowledge constrained by time and space. This means that we know it, but not yet. We feel proud with the knowledge of Einstein's theory of relativity. After all, we are of the few that understand it. Why is it that in all this empty space, we feel compelled to look for something? What drives us to do that? In his book, A Universe from Nothing, physicist Lawrence Krauss explains, nature comes up with surprises that far exceed those that the human imagination can generate. He reminds us that our galaxy is one of 400 billion in the observable universe, and that star stuff and earth stuff are largely the same, that every atom in our body was once inside a star that exploded, a supernova. So our bodies are literally made of stardust. And all the structures we can see, like stars and galaxies, were created by quantum fluctuations from nothing. Empty space has enough energy to dominate the expansion of the universe. Frank Close, professor of physics at Oxford University, in his book, Nothing, a very short introduction, reminds us that an atom is a perfect void. 99.999999% empty space and its emptiness is profound, but it's filled with powerful electrical fields. The finite region of empty space having all matter removed will still be filled with energy and this energy fluctuates spontaneously. Modern physics suggests that the universe could have emerged out of a vacuum but Close concludes in his book with the thought, I am confronted with the enigma of what encoded the quantum possibility into the void. So I'm speaking with Jack Pfeffer, a child survivor of the Holocaust and author of five books. And we've been going through his books and he just uh, described for us his book, The Theory of Everything Explained in a Simple Way. And I'll provide links on a BahaiPerspective.com to your books so people can get access to them. Now, Jack, do you have a project in the workings now that we've gone through these five books that you've written? I have one that I've been working on for quite a while. It's a work of fiction. <laughs> and even though I've been successfully writing scientific books, albeit they're my own imaginings and I don't know the accuracy of them, but anyways... I've been writing them, for better or worse. Fiction is a whole different thing. It's very difficult to write. I guess I lack the imagination to conjure up situations which are uh, like the movies that we watch sometimes. And I'm not good at it, so I'm struggling with it. And uh, we'll see what happens. It's an ongoing work now. But I enjoy writing, and I started writing late in my life. Actually, it started when I was 60. I'm almost 80 now, so it's only been a short time. But I enjoy it so much that whether people like it or not, I keep doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jack, I look forward to uh, seeing your next book come out whenever that may be. Yes, me too, believe me. (laughs) What's funny about fiction is that 
like my audience, I don't know what the outcome is. The plot starts and it takes on a life of its own. And that's what I find so intriguing about it. Sometimes the characters lead you into a direction which are completely unexpected. And that's the starting off point, the jumping off point of a new action in the book. So I'm looking forward to finding out what happens. Jack, thank you so much for sharing your work with us. You're quite welcome, Warren. It was a pleasure doing this. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jack Veffer, writer and child survivor of the Holocaust. You can find links to his books and this interview, along with other interviews, on abahaiperspective.com. You can find this interview on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Tonight, when I've lost my light, and my worldly mind is tired and worried, you know I need someone to lead me to the sun, to take my hand when I can't find my courage. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, won't you take me home?
Truthfulness is the foundation of all the human virtues. Without truthfulness, progress and success. In all the worlds of God are impossible. Impossible for any soul. Any soul impossible any any soul possible yeah any
running accord all the souls Joining accord all the souls Oh Lord, make these faces radiant Through the light of thy oneness Unite and bind together
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.